Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plug-in makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Jason Poss. Now, Jason is an extremely accomplished arranger, orchestrator, transcriber, and music preparation expert based in Los Angeles. He's worked on tons of different projects like Coco, Lord of the Rings, Frozen, The Oscars, and many, many, many others. Just look him up on IMDb and you're going to be thrown back in your chair by how much stuff Jason has done. Now, what I love about Jason is that he shows that there are so many different ways to make an incredible career in the music and sound industries. He's not the typical composer or sound designer, though he has done a lot of composing work before as well. But because of his kind of breadth of experience, he can show us multiple avenues of success in the music world, especially if you're interested in the L.A. Hollywood sort of career path. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Jason Poss. Okay, so the first question I have for you, because not a lot of people, especially in games who are getting into this, or even film really, know exactly what even being like a transcriber, music prep, orchestrator, those things really are. So can you give us a run through of what that actually is and how you work? Sure, sure. And I, and I understand because so many people today are coming from a, a background of they've learned most of what they know in a computer. And so there's, there's this disconnect between what happens when you deal with live musicians. And that's where I spend a lot of my life is that transition between computers and live musicians. When people ask me what I do and they're, and they're kind of looking for a broad overview of it, basically the short version of it is I handle most of what it takes to get music from a composer's desktop through a final recording in the mix. And so that involves orchestrating, that may involve transcription, hiring musicians, arranging what we call music copying, which is creating all the sheet music for the individual musicians who are going to be playing the music, they need something to read, consulting at sessions sometimes. There's a whole bunch that I conduct as well. So there's a lot of different parts of it. Orchestration is basically taking the composer's initial sketch, whether that be, hopefully it's on paper, but you know today it's not always on paper, so it needs to be transcribed. There's a kind of transcription that's MIDI transcription, which is taking the MIDI and converting it into notation. And then orchestration is the assigning of all those individual notes to the different instruments and deciding who's going to play what and more specifically how and balancing that ensemble and how it's all going to work. Because an arranging is, is a bit of an expansion of that. If you have to actually go in and start doing any kind of real creative work where you're revoicing things or you're adding in sections or putting an intro or a transition or something like that, we generally call that arranging. And then the next step of that is it gets handed off to a music copyist or very often a team of copyists. And those are the people who take what's on the score and they extract each of those individual lines for each musician and create separate sheet music for each individual musician. So that, for example, your trumpet player is only seeing the notes for the trumpet player and isn't having to read the 
sax player's notes or whatever. And there's, there's a real skill to that too. Part of what's gotten lost by a lot of people who don't do this work regularly is they believe that it's simply a matter of taking what's ever in the computer file and just kind of sticking that on the page and then taking whatever is on the score and just sticking that on the part. And there's a lot of translation that goes on in between there that, that often gets forgotten about. And there's really valuable for making a recording session come off properly. It sounds like your job helps make sure that the musicians can rock out to whatever it is the composer is creating. Like they can enjoy actually playing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this is something that I've seen in recording sessions where a lot of times they will blame musicians for a performance that's lackluster or something. And it's kind of sad because you have people and these musicians may be just working their tails off and doing a spectacular job to get it up to the level it is, but they may be fighting with awkward orchestration, or they may be fighting with a part that's notated in a way that's not idiomatic or, or isn't clear to them. And so the, they're having to put a lot more of their energy into just translating what's in front of them rather than kind of pulling their head out of the page and being able to really focus on making the music sing and, and bringing the composer's vision to life. So there's a lot of value in, the, in this process. And very often problems that creep into the process Composers don't even understand that that's where the problem was because they skipped a step or, or they went cheap on a step or something like that. And it shows in the final recording, but they were never able to see where the value was lost in the process. That makes sense. Yeah. And so for you, considering you do this thing that, you know, especially up and coming composers don't really think about very much until they go to a recording session and all goes terribly. And I hear so many horror stories of that over and over. How do you kind of share the value with people of saying like, no, this is important. Like, this is a thing that I can help with. How do you kind of communicate that? I refer to it as insurance. Mm. Nobody ever wants to pay for insurance because it's just, oh, you know, my house won't catch on fire. Why should I pay this money? And you never have to worry about it. But the minute you need it, if you don't have it, you are doomed and you will lose so much more money in, in the case of like insuring a building or something like that. You will lose so much more than you ever paid in the insurance. So the other part of it is, is what I mentioned earlier is just the fact that this is the part that A, allows your music to be put in front of musicians in a clear way that's idiomatic and, and in a way that they can clearly understand. And two, this is the part that allows them to really focus on your music as a composer and allows them to really try to make it the best that they can. Because musicians really want to do that. I mean, they, they want you to be happy when you go into the session. That's why they're there. They want to make you happy and they want to create something wonderful. Yeah. It's not an adversarial relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. Like we all want to play together. We all want to have fun. We all want to make something really great at the end of the day that people yeah. can feel good about us and the audience in the end. So you're there to basically usher your Sherpa essentially yeah. that ushers that along and make sure it happens, which is awesome because people like need that so badly and it helps their brain kind of turn off and not need to think about it. It's it's an extra step they don't need to think about when they hire someone right. like you and your team and all that sort of stuff, which is awesome. So a lot of people in Hollywood, especially where, where you are, you're in LA, tend to think there's composing and nothing else. Like that's basically, that's it. Like that's the only job in existence. I'm going to be a composer. I'm going to do nothing else. So I'm so curious what made you kind of get into this area and thrive in it? Because I know you're doing quite well and then you have tons of different clients. What made you kind of stick in it? Whereas most people are just kind of bristling at the edges of if they're orchestrating, if they're assisting, like, no, absolutely not. I have to be only a composer. What made you stay in this zone? Well, I'll, I'll have to confess that I never planned on 
being a composer. And, and I do compose here and there, but my worth as a musician was never tied to that. Awesome. I like and, that. and I never originally even had a particular interest in film music at all or, or game music or anything like that. I started out studying classical percussion in college and then moved on to studying jazz vibraphone. And when I got out of college, I was actually a jazz vibraphonist. I lived, grew up outside of Chicago. So I went back to Chicago and I spent my first year out of college as a substitute teacher, teaching junior high and high school, working construction with my father's steel erection business, and then working nights in Chicago. I would play one night a week with Barrett Deems, who was this legendary drummer on the Chicago scene. He used to play with uh, Louis Armstrong in the 50s. Then he played with Benny Goodman. And I played with him right up until he died uh, right in 99, I guess that was. And then moved to New York. And that was where I first got into the jingle biz a little bit because my wife was interested in that business. And so we, together we ended up writing a jingle for Crest Toothpaste that was played worldwide. And you know, one thing led to another. We, we, we got a fellowship with Mike Post and it was Mike Post who actually sat us down and said, hey, you know, there's a place for you in LA if you want to. He wasn't offering us a job. He was just saying, you know, you could do okay here. And so we came out to Los Angeles. Well, before that, I had actually, I went back to New York and started working with Howard Shore, assisting him with orchestrating on the Lord of the Rings films. And then we had enough money at that point to decided, well, what the heck, let's move to LA. And then it was in Los Angeles that we both started to, to work. We started working in music copying and doing little bits of composing here and there. And, and one thing led to another, that led to me doing more arranging. And I had already had the background of working with Howard, doing orchestrating and things. So I never really felt like I had to compose to be fulfilled or to be successful nice. or something. And, and I kind of didn't care. When I started out, I actually thought film, TV, and game music was where the hacks were. <laughs> <laughs> it really, the serious musicians were, were, you know, they were playing in symphonies or, or, or classical soloists, or they were jazz musicians who were hacking it out every night on the bandstand or things like that. And, you know, a bunch of hacks, they, they were the ones who were, who were doing this film and TV stuff, because that's not real music. Yeah, boy, talk about being wrong. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, and then you land in Los Angeles and the musicians are fabulous. You know, they're, they're the best studio musicians in the world, really. And Amazing. So in that way, it wasn't this thing where I, where I always had this very narrow sense of what it was that, that my career had to be. And so that made me open to a lot of other possibilities. And I started falling into these other things and finding that I really enjoyed them and that I was actually, I had the skill set to do well at them. And, and I was pretty good at these things. And for me, music has always been a collaborative process. Part of the magic of what we do is that you get these incredibly talented people together and together we all create something that none of us could create on our own. Mm -hmm. And so as long as I'm part of that process, that's where I derive a lot of joy. I like that. And, and I, just, I love being a part of the process. That's awesome. And it's so healthy too, because you're happy with what you're doing. Like that's so, so good and kind of rare in any field, right? <laughs> that's, that's not a common healthy mental space to be in. So it's like very enlivening for me to hear that too. It's just, it's just nice. I mean, I'm that, that it's all, you know, sunshine and lollipop of course. The time, obviously. I mean, there, every job at some point, you get to the point where there's those days where you just, you know, where did I go wrong in life? <laughs> I'm doing this, you know? Totally. Yeah. We all have those. You know, it comes back to that thing of, of why did I want to do this in the first place? Right. And, and it's about connecting with people and, and being part of something bigger than yourself. And, and 
feeling all these these magical feelings that we're able to conjure as a part of making music. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. And you, you, speaking of making music, you know, LA is kind of the hub, right? That's the place everyone talks about. That's the place where, you know, a lot of people will say or have said, if you want to do XYZ, if you want to work in games or film, especially you have to be in LA. Mike Post told you, hey, there's a place for you in LA, you'd probably do well there. And I remember hearing uh, on a previous interview of yours that uh, he even told you that like, hey, come out here, do nothing for a year, and then then eventually people will start hiring you. That's a part of that whole process. And that is 100% true. That is how you kind of break into a field for sure in a big city. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and literally nobody hired us. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely expected. A lot of people expect to go there and like, oh, now I'm now I'm a huge star with like immediately. But no, that obviously wasn't the case. Right. It took probably took some time to build that up. So how long was that process from moving there and then building an actual sustainable career with your business? Well, like like I said, that first year was was tough. And but we came out expecting that nobody was going to hire us in the first year. And remember at that point, I had just finished doing the Lord of the Rings. So I came off of the Lord of the Rings, went to LA and was a nobody. And I remember sitting in one meeting and somebody asked me, so, so what have you done? And I said, oh, well, for the last year I've spent, you know, we were over in London for however many months and things and doing this on the Lord of the Rings films. And he just cut me off. No, 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 no. What have you done here? <laughs> I just got here. It's like, oh, okay. So you really haven't done anything yet. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Well, I mean, some people took that attitude. I mean, not everybody's like that. Right. So the process then was, you know, little bits of things. It wasn't like I sat for a year and then all of a sudden, boom, everything was fine. My wife managed to get a job through a friend at a music copy house working for a guy named Bill Hughes. And he had, he'd been around the business for years and years. I mean, he went all the way back to the Dean Martin show and things. And that led to doing work on Dancing with the Stars. They picked up that gig in the first season. And, and he had other clients. He had done the Emmys several times and things like that. And then they needed extra help there. So she said, well, hey, my husband does this work too. So I got in doing that. So that was between the two of us, we were putting things together. Then I also got the job doing little bits of transcribing for Disney Character Voices International. And so that's been just a, a continuing role of things. Again, that's not a full-time job. That's just, it's another client that I have. And it was a gradual process of probably four or five years or so after having already lived in New York City and worked in New York City for five years, yeah. you know, starting over in a new town and getting ourselves on our feet. But yeah, that first year, I mean, it was by the end of the first year, we were burning through our savings. Holy moly. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. And there's a there's a common kind of, again, like I mentioned, there's that mindset of, okay, I have to be successful immediately. Obviously, that's not the case. It takes time, no matter what city you're in, Yeah, especially somewhere as big as LA. And I'm curious what you think nowadays, considering, you know, things are a little more global, we have internet stuff like that. How important is it to be in that hub like LA or, you know, if it's video games, maybe Seattle or New York or things like that? How important is that? Is that still a key thing to your career? Does it matter anymore? It's different now. I will, I will say that. But a lot of it depends on what you're doing. You know, for people doing library work, well, you can be anywhere. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're creating music for libraries, it really doesn't matter. They just want you to send in the tracks. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of video game composers who are based in places other than Los Angeles. A lot of the film work, though, is done here in Los Angeles. And, and that's with film especially and with a lot of U.S. television as well. Mm -hmm. That's mainly because the offices are here and the producers are here. They may be shooting in New York or shooting somewhere else, but very often the post may come back to Los Angeles. Yeah. And all the production decisions are being made in Los Angeles. And so being a part of that community makes it a lot easier to 
keep the pulse of, of what's happening in the industry and, and to make different types of connections and things. So for that part of it, Los Angeles is, is an important place in the US. And you know, in, in Europe, it's a bit different because it's a different film market, and, you know, same with India and, and other places. Now, if you're looking to do something like Broadway, well, you have to be in New York for that. I mean, there is a theater scene out here and, and, and a musical scene and whatnot, but let's face it, yeah. the heart of it is in New York. So there, it has changed and, and there's a lot more that can be done remotely, but mm-hmm. yeah. well, especially with COVID, that's been highlighted, that there's, there's more that can be done remotely. But it's also highlighted the fact that a lot of stuff happens still from people sitting down and shaking hands in a room because this is such a subjective business that someone very much wants to sit in a room with you and get a feel for who you are as a yes. person because they want to know if there's a creative connection there. They want to know if, if you they feel like you're somebody that I can work with. Do, do we have something in common that as far as our, our vision or, or our skills or, or something like that? And we're human beings. We, we read a lot of that through nonverbal cues and things, which you pick up much more easily in, in a personal situation. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned that there's that part of it where you're, you know, shaking hands, you're talking to them in person, you're, sh- you're sharing that vision. It, you hit a point really importantly that, or at least from my point of view, there's no real formalized process to this. Like there's no send in a resume or like a demo or things like that. And then, yeah. oh, okay, let's, let's put out an open call to see if someone's going to orchestrate for us. Like that doesn't happen. It's all people, you know, or friends of friends and that sort of stuff. So what do you recommend people do who are kind of breaking in, starting out, or even intermediate do to make sure they are one of the people that get called on whatever project? Oh, yeah. Boy, and that's hard because, you know, you could pick any successful person, however you want to define success. And that's a whole nother d- discussion we could have. Right. And, and look at, at the, the, the whole sequence of events that led to them getting to where they, they are and try to copy that. And it would never work out the same way mm-hmm. because so much of this is capitalizing on opportunities as they present themselves, whatever those opportunities happen to be, and being open to as many of those possibilities as you can is a really key thing. And this comes back to that original idea of, oh, I have to be a composer and it has to work this way. Right. This is a really competitive business. There are more people in it than there are jobs. Yes. And so, you know, the the truth is there isn't a place for everyone. And there's a certain amount of luck involved. And we tend to look at successful people and say, oh, they must have done something special. Well, not always. There may have been someone just as qualified right next to them who didn't get the same break for whatever reason. And I think what it really boils down to is you have to be able to expose yourself to as many opportunities as possible. And they may come in in weird ways and they may not be what you expect. But I think, sadly, what a lot of people need now is some sort of a financial buffer to be able to ride out the... Mm -hmm difficult beginning process in order to be able to get to those opportunities, which again, once you get to them, they aren't a guarantee, but being able to capitalize then on them and then have the skills once the opportunity presents itself, have the skills to be able to take advantage of it and and grow from that process. That's that's really important too, because there are a lot of people who get opportunities, they take advantage of it, but they hit a ceiling, you know, they're not going to go beyond that because of the fact that they just don't, they haven't ever developed the skills that are necessary for whatever it is that they're trying to do. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. And it, I, I feel bad because that's not really advice. It's, it's not a step-by-step procedure though. I, I think that's good though, because I, I am lucky that, you know, you and I both went to Berkeley at just at different times. And I was lucky that I had a professor who told me similar to what Mike Post told you of like, it's not going to work out right away. So having that mindset when I moved to Seattle after graduating, 
I was mentally fine. Yeah. Like I was like, okay, I know it's not going to work out. I'm just going to network. I'm going to talk to people. I'll work on free stuff, whatever. It'll be garbage. That's fine. I'm not expecting anything so that when something comes up, it was a nice surprise. It wasn't, oh, I have to succeed. Oh no, it's been two months and now I'm destitute. Like that wasn't the expectation. Right. That's not what happened. Yeah. I was very lucky in that regard too. People tend to get really hung up, especially here in the United States about Am I successful? Meaning, do I financially derive all of my income from this passion of mine, or am I not successful? Meaning, I have to supplement this in some way at some point in my life. Mm-hmm. That's a weird way to define this because the, the, there's no shame in, in doing something else for a period of your life or concurrently with this thing that you're doing in order to support yourself. Come on, we've all got to have food, shelter, clothing, safety to begin with. And, and second of all, we all have to be human beings. I mean, being so focused on one small, narrow-minded thing doesn't make you a particularly well-rounded human being, which also makes it tougher when you go into these meetings with people and have to sit and talk to them. And, and well, what else have you done? Well, I updated my sample library yesterday. You know, who cares? I mean, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because that is very important kind of soft skill to learn is I see a lot of people who are getting into you know, in my case, game audio, who are way into it, which is great, nothing wrong with that, but it's all they're into. And I can't have a conversation with them. I don't want to, me personally, I don't want to talk about synths ever again. I use them every day, but I don't care. Like, it's fine. I'd rather talk about like something stupid. Like I want to talk about how how much I love white chocolate. Great, that's fantastic. And I'm much more likely to become a friend with someone when it's just something real, as opposed to let's talk about violins for 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is, and, and there's a belief that you, if you're passionate about it, that's like the, you're monomaniacal about it almost. And, and that's, right. that's not true. I could be passionate about something without having that be the only thing in my life. And, and maybe yes. that's the other key that should be stressed to people about when you're starting out, what, what things are important. I mean, one of the things that my wife, Danita, and I always tell people is have something else in your life besides this career goal, because this career is brutal and it's not going to be your friend and it's not going to make you feel happy all the time. And, and it's going to be abusive at times. And when that happens, boy, have something else in your life that you derive worth from, because if this is all it is, you're in for an abusive relationship. You know, it's a hard truth, but it is true. Like it is something that people need to think about. I'm curious how you kind of manage that because, you know, it, there's obviously like so many people pulling all-nighters all the time. And you, you've you used an example before, and it's kind of a somewhat famous example of, you know, Oliver Nelson, who's that famous jazz arranger who died pulling an all-nighter. That is a thing that actually happened. Like right. the fact that that sort of thing comes up in our industry, which is like relatively common, not people dying doing all-nighters, but hurting themselves, mm-hmm. working nonstop. I'm curious how you kind of stay balanced or you have a family, so how you kind of stay away from pulling those all-nighters and yeah. hurting yourself and making it so you get sick and injured, all those sorts of things. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's hard. And that's something that I was fortunate to learn early on. And it was partially because a lot of it comes back from, from that time I was working for Howard Shore when we were doing Lord of the Rings. I mean, like we went to London on Return of the King and I was in London for what, four months. And I don't think during that entire four month period, I had a single week where I worked less than 80 hours. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was grueling. 
I would never agree to do that again in the same way. And so it was beneficial for me to realize early on in my career that, okay, I can work my tail off and I'm not going to get that much farther ahead because of it. I'm going to get ahead, but there, there's a point of diminishing returns. And, and what am I doing to myself? Am I making any more money because of this? Well, no, not, I mean, you know, you get some extra hours, but really in the grand scheme of things, I'm not making that much more money than I would if I had worked 40 hours a week or something. And I'm definitely not making enough to offset the amount of damage I'm doing to myself psychologically and physically. I mean, I was exhausted. I, I, I had, I think like two weeks or I just kind of sat around and did nothing when I came home. Ugh. I mean, you know, jet lag was part of that too. Right. So that that was what kind of started the, the mentality for me early on in my career that, okay, there there has to be a better way. And and the other thing what was, you know, when I got out here to Los Angeles was seeing other people get chewed up by working that way. I mean, I knew people who were very mm. successful who were having heart attacks because of the fact that they were just pushing themselves too hard and, and they weren't going to make it. Oh, and they, they had to kind of have these harsh wake up moments. So for me... A lot of times it boils down to now looking at a project and seeing what it's going to take to do the project and making an honest evaluation, especially if, if I'm having to estimate a project. So very often people are like, well, tell me how much this is going to cost. Okay, well, let's sit down and we'll talk about it. And, you know, and then I go through my numbers and spreadsheets and everything and come up with an estimate. And part of that is understanding what does it take to actually do the work? How many hours of work is this potentially going to take? And being really honest about it and then saying, can I do this myself? And if not, then saying, okay, then I can't do this all by myself. That's not a failure on my part. We are human beings. And, and the point is to be able to do this and thrive. Then I need to have help involved in this. And those people need to get paid. And so being honest up front about, okay, this is the amount of work it is. This is the time it's going to take. And then this is the cost in order to be able to do it in a reasonable way. And the hard part is that then you have to explain that to someone. And some people will just say, no, I'm not going to pay that. And then you have to make a choice. Do you say yes to this project and abuse yourself over it? Or do you say no? And sometimes you'll say yes because you say, okay, well, it's not that long or something, but I'll try to put bookends on this thing. Okay. The, you know, put in the deal, you know, this project ends at this date and anything beyond that is going to be renegotiated. Or this project is for X number of hours over a course of how many weeks. If we go beyond that, then something else is going to kick in or we have to renegotiate. And sticking to that and just being honest with people about this is the cost. These are the people. And I find it's easier to do when there's other people involved in the project as well. Because now suddenly I'm, if I'm really passionate in your project and, and I want to do it, and even though I know the budget's not right or things like that, I can do that. I can jump in and I, and I can take it on the chin for a period or something like that. But if I've got two or three people working with me, I can't ask them to do that. I can't call up somebody and say, hey, will you come in and work all night and only get paid for three hours of, of normal daytime work? I mean, they can't go click, you know, <laughs> they don't care about yeah. this. So it makes it a bit easier to do it that way. When I see that it's something beyond what I can handle, when I'm thinking about the other people who are involved, who are people that I feel responsible for as well, that makes it easier to put parameters around the project and to say, you know, this project, I will agree to do this for this amount of money within this scope and being very specific about it. Mm -hmm. I, I find that's helpful to avoid. I mean, there are times where you're going to have to work late and things, but if the client understands that and is willing to compensate and is willing to put the resources forward to make that possible or put the resources forward so that that doesn't have to happen, then it becomes manageable.
Yeah, if, if you kind of hinted at it, like some clients will say, oh, I can't pay that, or they'll just outright refuse to pay that. Or sometimes they just genuinely don't have unlimited money. You know, not every project is this giant Hollywood thing, this giant kind of blockbuster that ha has basically unlimited money to just kind of throw around to make things happen. So I'm curious, how do you work in very small budgets? How do you work when things aren't those giant things that were where it's just do whatever you want, here's money, take care of it? Yeah, the first, well, the first step is it depends on who you're working with because there will be some people who say, I want X, but I only want to pay this for it. And, and you can say, okay, well, that doesn't work. And some people say, well, I don't care. That's all I'm going to pay. And, you, and whoever does this job is going to have to deliver that. Well, okay, at that point, fine, we're done because the, the expectations mm. just aren't meeting with reality. If someone comes in and says, well, I want this, but I only have this, I can come back and say, what you want is going to cost this. But if you're flexible, we can talk about there may be other strategies to get you what you want, but it's not going to be in the way that you expect to get there. And this is where we start talking about things like, okay, this is a common thing where people believe that regardless of the budget, they should be able to have, let's say, a full orchestra. Hmm. And so therefore, we'll find somewhere, there'll be musicians somewhere that will be willing to do it. And there'll be orchestrators somewhere that will be, yes, yeah, sure, that, that you can probably do that. And you'll kill people in the process and you'll get crappy work and, and all this other stuff. I prefer to circle around and talk to people and say, hey, let's have a really intelligent discussion about this. We don't have the money to do this the way that you want. So let's look at what other options are there. Maybe we can dive in and we can take a look at the music and we can say, hey, part of this could be done in the box. And if we are smart about how we orchestrate and we're smart about how we decide what things to record, we can use a much smaller ensemble and go to somewhere where the musicians are very good, where we can work very efficiently and quickly and get you the same result or something equivalent that'll still work within your budget. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a question of looking at the overall process and looking at it holistically. You know, what do we need orchestration-wise? What do we need recording-wise? Where can we take the money that we have and get the most bang for the buck out of it? Because that doesn't always mean getting the most musicians or the biggest studio or the most famous whatever. Sometimes it means, you know, we're going to get the most bang for the buck out of having this project done this way and having a particular kind of mix done on it so that we can unite all these elements in a specific way. Or we're gonna carefully rearrange the music so that it can be recorded in a specific way with some particular musicians who we know can just kind of knock the ball out of the park on this particular style. We'll have a much smaller ensemble that's live, but we'll mix it with other elements that aren't as key in this particular kind of music. You know, Maybe we've got some specific soloists or, or lead lines or something we need. And the other stuff, because of the type of music it is, doesn't need that much attention to detail, we can put that stuff in the box, let's say. And so we can look at all these different creative ways of doing it. Nice. And a lot of this grew out of my work in live television because very often in TV, you have limited budgets, but you also have limited physical space. So you can't put everything you want on stage or in the screen or something like that. And so you have a set ensemble and the trick is figuring out how do we work with this ensemble to get all these different things that we need. And so, you know, sometimes the way you set up the ensemble can give you all the flexibility you need, even with a smaller package. And, you know, and then how do we mic it in such a way that it'll, it'll sound good? How do we mix it with other elements? All of that stuff. There's no single answer. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely no single answer. And it's cool that you're able to come to a client and say, here are our options. Because I think that makes them trust you more and it makes you seem like more of an expert and makes them want to probably work with you more if, if it's, hey, we can't do this, 
But how about this? You, because of your experience, you can know for sure that these alternate paths right. kind of work. And that's a big deal. That's the mark of an expert for sure. And for someone who runs their own business, that's a really big deal because then you become trusted and people keep calling you over and over. And is that kind of what happened on The Moon's Not That Great, that movie that you worked on in 2019? Is that like how it worked about? Or Yeah, yeah, that was, that was a big part of it. Paul Carden was the, the composer on this, this short animated film. It was made by a, a really neat animator named Matthew Libman. It's a little eight-minute film. And this guy had just gotten out of school and things. We're not talking a lot of money behind this thing. But he had more than, than a lot of short films had. And so Paul had wanted to do this great big thing. It was very Gershwin-influenced. So he was thinking things like Rhapsody in Blue and, and what, American in Paris and, and that kind of thing. Big orchestras with piano and, and, and all this other stuff. But he didn't have the budget for that. And so he came to me and, and we had we were discussing it and, and said, you know, is there a way we can make this work? And so we looked at it and, and you know, I listened to some of the tracks and we were talking over what their goals were for it and things and, and what colors it needed. And we talked through it and decided, OK, we could really do this with he had he had some great prelay tracks already that he had done in his sequencer and, and they sounded really good. But, you know, for that style, there was a few things that you really needed. I said, well, look. We could do this with a string quartet. And we looked down and we said, we can do a, a woodwind quintet. We did like alto flute, oboe, clarinet, bass clarinet, and bassoon. And then he had all these solo trumpet lines. So there was a solo trumpet player who could improvise and a really great player who was able to do all of that stuff. And so it was a matter of, of sitting down and looking at this and saying, we could do this in LA and get really, really good players. And, and I could orchestrate it and we can handle all the copying and, and get this wonderful team of people together to do this thing and get some really, really high quality results out of it. If we're willing to forego the traditional thinking of we're going to need a big ensemble to do this and everything, which means the only option is to go to Eastern Europe because that's the only place where people will work for cheap enough that we can put enough bodies in the room. But it wouldn't have given him the results that he wanted because there were some other challenges within it as far as conducting and the way the tempos were working and things that took a lot of work ahead of time that you didn't really want to have to just throw at a remote group and have them try to hack mm -hmm. through it. Interestingly enough, what happened was we, we were putting this whole plan together and then the director got wind of, somebody had, had said to him, well, you know, you could go to this other place. It was in Ohio somewhere or something. And you could get an entire orchestra for what you're paying for this little ensemble with the orchestration and everything. And he immediately went back to the composer and said, there's, why are we wasting all this money and, and everything when we could get all these people over here? And the composer called me up and he was freaking out because how am I going to tell this guy it, on paper, it looks like a bad deal. And so we, I, I, I offered to talk to the director, but, but he says, no, let, let me, I have a relationship with this guy. Let me do it. He says, just give me the information. And so what we really tried to drive home to the director of, it's not just a case of quantity. It really is about the quality of product that goes into your film. And we've developed this entire strategy to be able to get you Hollywood level quality on the budget that you have. It just means there's less bodies in the room. And if that's what your goal is, is, is quality, then we think this is the better option. If you just want for ego purpose or whatever to have a large ensemble and feel like your money is being better spent that way, then go that route, but you're going to lose our current orchestrator. You're going to lose the copy team. You're going to lose all these great musicians. And, and this whole strategy goes out the window. And, and we're just going to have to deal with whatever the results are from that. And fortunately, when it was laid out to him, that discussion was had, the director said, no, no, I really want the quality here because this is going to be my calling card. Mm -hmm. And it worked out really, really well as a result. 
I love it. Yeah, you, you put in such a good way the importance of that expertise. And you weren't trying to convince, you weren't trying to sell. You're just saying, here's the deal. There you go. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, people also want to know that you genuinely care about the quality of their product as well. I always take it from my position. If the client looks good, then I look good. And if I can make your product better and more musical and, and more interesting and exciting and, and make the experience a positive experience of creating it as well, and that raises your capital, then I'm happy. You know, it's not all about, oh, we have to do it my way because it's my way. If you have a better way, well, we should probably look at that too. Right. Yeah. What you just kind of surmised, it was a good kind of encapsulation of like, my favorite types of people are people like you who are the mixture of business person and artists kind of melded together because you're able to talk to people, you're able to know what the true desires are, you're able to get to the heart of the matter, and you're also able to do the craft, the art, all that sort of stuff and understand both sides, which is just a delight to see. I love seeing that. And I'm curious, <laughs> when, when you're, you know, you've worked in the field for so long, you have that mix, which is great. And you're, you're very good at staying in touch with the field. You're not, you know, someone who just kind of says, oh, I've made it. Let me just disappear or anything like that. So what are you seeing nowadays with people who are up and coming, who are newer, who do want to be running their own business or being a freelancer or whatever it may be? What are you seeing kind of lacking with musicians, business people, those, that kind of mix without mm -hmm. people actually realizing they're lacking? It, it could be a skill. It could be a mindset. It could be not knowing just a certain thing to say, anything like that. What do you see as kind of something that's not there or that should be? Oh boy, that's a, that's a tough question because there's so many people out there and people are coming from such different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm assuming you're talking mainly about, about composers and, and, and people yeah, who composers do and, audio yeah. work. Yes. You know, one, one of the things that I do see is with composers, there is a difference in mentality and, and a little bit of, of difference in experience when you have so many people who have substituted working in a computer for working with other people. Mm. And you know, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier, that there's a difference in how they perceive the process of, of working with human beings, whether it be live musicians or music editors or something like that. You, know, you talk about soft skills, that's part of it. As musicians, I think there's a, there's a real value that's lost when people don't perform. And they aren't part of an ensemble as part of their training. That's a huge, huge difference. I mean, if, if your entire education is from the point of view of, I just put notes on a page or into a computer, you never fully understand what it takes to create that music and to perform that mm. music. And it used to be that anybody who wrote was also a performer. You know, they played somehow in, in, in some sort of an ensemble somewhere and took lessons and became proficient on an instrument. I still to this day think that is of supreme importance because it not only lets you understand the importance of working with other people, it brings you in and gives you an intimate knowledge of what it means to actually create music and to be a part of that process of performing that music and sharing it with other people and understanding how people respond to that music. Because when you're working just either on a piece of paper or behind a screen, you've lost that basic connection with other human beings 
in seeing how they respond to the music and what things they respond to and what it takes to generate that response on a physical level. And, and you, you know, we learn physically. I mean, we, there's muscle memory and all these other things that we really drive lessons home in our minds in a much deeper and more formative way than we do just reading it out of a book or in some sort of a, of a theoretical sense. So I think that's yeah. one of the things that, that I most commonly see is, is missing among musicians, yeah. is that experience of working as a musician. Mm. That doesn't mean you have to do it professionally, but just having played in something beyond your, I mean, sometimes it's not even a high school band. I mean, but having something preferably beyond that where you're actually performing for an audience in, in, a, in an intimate way. Yeah, it makes you think about everything you're putting on that page or into the computer deeply. Absolutely. And it makes you think about not just how it's going to be performed, but how an audience is going to respond to this. And how does it make me feel when I hear it as an, a listener? Or how, how does it make me feel when I play it as a performer? All of these things are, are this is why we created music in the first place. You know, that, that, that yeah. experience, that very basic experience of connecting with other human beings and being a part of that whole process. That is true. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's a beautiful penultimate question. I have one more for you. Yeah. And it, you actually kind of hinted at it earlier, and it's the question I ask everybody, all, all my guests at the end. And I'm curious, what was your definition of success when you first started out, when you first started out in the field as a musician, yeah. just getting into the field? And how has that changed? And what is your definition of success now? Oh, man, yeah. Oh, this is a good one, because this has changed a lot. I bet. My, when I got out of college, my definition of success was so much lower than what a lot of other people who go into film and TV music was. Because I was a jazz musician, I didn't have any illusions about what my career would be. I mean, you want a quick ticket to poverty, be a jazz vibraphonist. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. But my idea of success was, if I could make a living, meaning I could put food on my table, have a roof over my head, health insurance, and you know, a, a reasonable hope of, of a decent life by being a musician. That was success. That was it. If I could do that, that would just be fabulous. So that was the, the bar because that's not an easy bar to hit as a jazz musician. Beyond that, my goal was, I saw it as, as like a, a three or a four part year. I wanted to have, you know, like, like a third of the year was performing and touring, a third of the year was creating new music, whether it be writing or, or, or working stuff out with a band to create something. A third of the year was recording that and, mm -hmm. and getting it recorded, you know, to release a new album so that you could start that cycle again, you know, and keep doing this thing. And then if I was doing really well, those would actually be quarters. Each one of those would be a quarter of the year. And if I did really well, I would have one quarter of the year to do whatever the hell I wanted. <laughs> that was my goal was, was to do I that. So in that sense, my career is a total failure. <laughs> when you think about it, I mean, if, if that was my goal, okay, I failed miserably at that. That never happened. But who gives a crap? Right. On the other hand, now, in some ways, that original base level of if I can just be a musician and make a living, I feel like, okay, I did that. You know, kind of like, don't tell anybody, but I kind of pulled <laughs> over society and I got to do that. I get to do this thing. I'm doing okay. And as long as the rug doesn't get yanked out from under me, maybe I can keep doing this thing. <laughs> On one level, that that hasn't changed. And I still kind of look around sometimes and go, you know, is somebody going to catch me in this thing or not? <laughs> then it became more, more of a case of, okay, as I started working more, then we started to get into these quality of life issues. And then it became more of, okay, 
can I do this and not kill myself in the process? Mm -hmm. But now one of the goals that I've carried throughout the whole career now, and, and got became more acute as I moved to Los Angeles, is that I never want to be the grizzled, angry Hollywood musician who just is always unhappy with everything and has seen behind the curtain too many times and is just frustrated and, and is completely disillusioned and doesn't believe in anything anymore. If I get to that point, I'm gone. I'm going to go do something else. There's no point in me continuing to do this. If I can't enjoy this in some way, it's too hard of a gig for me to, to keep going at if I'm not deriving pleasure. So for me, the success now is if I can continue to do this and I can continue to do projects that are interesting to me and feel fulfilling to me in one way or another, because they're not all fulfilling. Let's be honest. Sometimes the biggest projects you're doing just for the cash and that's fine. This is a job and things, but as long as I'm not getting burned out and frustrated by this and I'm still able to make a living, that's success for me. That's it. As long as I can maintain a good living, I can enjoy what I do most of the time. And I'm, it's not taking a toll on me where I'm just going to be that, you know, the curmudgeon sitting in the corner. What do you want? You know, that, that guy, when you call, <laughs> then that's, that's going to be success. Because at this point I have met some of the people that, that most people would consider their heroes. I've worked with some of them. I've seen behind the curtain on, on a lot of big projects and some of the heroes have lived up to their image some of them have not. Some of them have been huge disappointments. Some of the projects have been just as magical and mesmerizing as you would expect. Other ones have been absolute nightmares in spite of the fact that they seem like they should be wonderful. It's just like, I don't ever want to work with these people again. And so, you know, people always, well, what do you want to do? I don't know what I want to do next. I'm doing stuff and we'll see what comes down the pipe next and, and try to make the best of it. And if it all goes belly up and it's painful and, and pointless. Well, I guess there's other things in life I could do. You have such a good, wholesome mindset about all of this. It's awesome to see. I yeah, even that it. or I'm just a little wacky. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> both. <laughs> why, why not both? Why not both together? <laughs> now we're getting that's, down to the real brass tags, aren't we? Now, now, <laughs> yeah, now, now we're in it. But that's, that's it. That was the last question. Thank you so, 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 so much. This is awesome. What a treasure to I have you the on. pleasure to chat with you. Oh, my God. It was so good. And I'm, I'm curious, do you have anything to like plug or, or a website or Twitter or Instagram, anything like that that you want to share with people? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah. How do, how do people get in touch with me? I mean, you can find me. If, usually, if people want to get in touch with me, if they need me for something, they can call somebody and they can find a way to get in touch with me. Yeah. I'm so bad. I don't have a website. That's awesome. I love that. No, I, I need to get one at some point. And I need to do it soon. I do have a Twitter feed, but I like, I rarely post anything on it. Yeah. I'm so bad about that. No, I don't have anything to plug. Amazing. Truly incredible. Again, you've got your head straight. You're good. And like, that's it. And you know, people can Google your name. You, you yeah, pop up yeah. very easily. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not like I'm hiding somewhere and in, in, in the witness protection program or something like that. Right. <laughs> Yet. Yet. Yeah. Yet. We can't say too soon. Yeah. But yes. Thank you so much, Jason. This was amazing. Hey, thank you, man. And like I said, it's, it's good to talk to you. And I'm so happy we've managed to reconnect after all this time. I love it. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. 
So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound biz sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.